You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. When I um, summited the peak of one of Romania's highest mountains, over 8,200 feet, and I took in this glorious vista, one of the most beautiful views that I had ever seen in my life. Well, I didn't tell you purposefully about the trek back down the mountain because it was less than glorious. You see, the problem was the guy that put the trip together, um, he thought it was going to be about an eight-hour hike, and it ended up being a 15-hour hike. And so, you know, the big problem was that we were uh, losing daylight, and this became especially problematic towards the end of the hike, because we were, um, at the bottom, it was kind of the steep portion of the mountain that was two miles of just switchbacks going down. And if we had taken those switchbacks, we would have run out of light, and because we didn't think we were going to be out there that long, we didn't bring flashlights. So we ended up deciding to save time to just go as the crow flies. We said, look, we've got to be down, so we're just going to go down. And if you're sitting there thinking, that sounds like a terrible idea, it was. It was an awful idea. We were slipping and falling. We were taking uh, tree branches to the face. It was awful. And, um, you know, as with every step, kind of sliding down that mountain for two miles, it made me wonder if, uh, if the hour on that peak, the glorious though it was, was worth it. If that hour on the peak was worth the slog back down the mountain. And isn't this so much like our own life? You know, we have these great mountaintop experiences, but life is mostly lived down in the valley. And it's easy to trust God on the mountaintop, but down in the valley, faith comes much harder. And so the, the question that I want us to entertain today is this. What is our hope when our faith feels weak or barely present? And if that describes where you are today, I think you're in a good place. Because what we're going to find is that in this text, it's good news for people with weak faith. Because what we learn is that Jesus is faithful to the faithless. So if you would, please turn with me. In your Bibles, we're going to look look at Luke 9, verses 37 to 45. Luke 9, 37 to 45. It says this, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this afternoon I want us to consider this passage under three general headings. Fallenness, faithlessness, and faithfulness. So let's start with fallenness. So the passage opens up with Jesus and Peter and James and John coming back down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This place in which Jesus had given them an unprecedented glimpse into Jesus' divine glory. And when they get back down, they're met by a crowd of people. And in that crowd is a father with a sick son. This boy is an epileptic, and he has exceedingly violent seizures that threaten his life. But what we find out here is that this isn't just a physical malady, but rather it's a spiritual one. This boy is demon-possessed. And I think that off the bat, Luke serves us up this very strong contrast between this and the account of the transfiguration. Up on the mountain, the glory of Jesus was shown, and Peter and James and John had this foretaste of heaven But then when they come back down the mountain, things were different. They were entering into a world marked by suffering. A world buckling under the weight of the curse of the fall. Yes, uh, Jesus is actively at work rolling back the effects of 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 the fall. But until he returns, both our world and our hearts are broken by sin. And we feel this every day, don't we? We feel it when we hear news of large-scale suffering in the world, things like war and natural disaster. But we also hear it in the daily sufferings that each of of us carry in our own lives. Each of these are a result of the fallenness of our world and our own hearts. And because of that, our faith is frequently going to be challenged We're going to suffer, and we're going to wonder where God is in the midst of that suffering. We're going to cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? Will you hide your face forever? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Why do I say all of this? Well, I say it because I think that our living in a fallen world as sinful people means that we shouldn't be surprised when faith feels hard. But we so often are. 
You know, one of the things that I think we often do, the reason for this is because we look back to those mountaintop seasons of life and we judge them as the standard for what faith should feel like in our life. We look back to those first years of leading young life. That time in college in which you were living with all Christians uh, in one house. That time before you had kids and they demanded every waking second of your attention. Not that I'm bitter about that. We look back on these seasons and we feel dejected and ashamed if our faith now does not feel like it did then. But friends, we have to remember that life isn't lived on the mountaintop. It's lived most often in the valley. And because of that, we shouldn't be surprised when our faith is tried. And in today's passage, as we go on, we're going to see an example of that struggle with faith that doesn't go well. Jesus is going to tell us here that the disciples here are an example of faithlessness. So we learn that this father uh, took his demon-possessed boy to the disciples, and he asked them uh, to exercise the child, to heal him, to make him better. But the disciples weren't able to do it. Now, this is, uh, this is a problem because at the beginning of Luke 9, it says this, Jesus called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons. So what's going on here? At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus says, hey, you have power over all demons. But then we get to this passage and we find that the disciples can't cast a demon out. What's going on? Well, I think that we get an answer in verse 41 when Jesus calls the disciples a faithless and twisted generation. Now, admittedly, this sounds pretty harsh, but I think in Mark's account of this, we actually get a bit more context for Jesus' words. There we read that after Jesus cast the demon out, the disciples go up to him and they say, why couldn't we do that? Which is a bit of an insight into where their heart was. They were mostly concerned not about the boy, not about the glory of God, but rather they were wondering, why couldn't we do that thing that you just did? So they go to him and they ask him why they couldn't do it. And Jesus responds, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying here that if they had just said a prayer, the the demon would have come out. You know, because prayer um, doesn't work like a spell from Harry Potter. It's not just if you say the right words at the right time in the right way, you're going to get the desired result. No, the power and efficacy of prayer comes from faith. Trust that God hears you and is going to respond according to his covenant promises. So when Jesus says that they weren't able to cast out the demon because they didn't pray, it was less a comment on technique. Oh, if you just said a prayer, the demon would have come out. And more a comment about the state of their heart. He's essentially saying here, you had so little faith in me and in the promise that I gave you that you didn't even think to pray about it. His words were harsh because he was understandably sad and frustrated. 
These disciples are the people who are going to lead the early church. These are the disciples who are going to form the faith of these early followers. And yet here, all they're concerned about is themselves and not even this boy who has a demon. And so he gives them harsh words. Now, it's easy to get down on the disciples, to think, oh, they're just, they're just kind of, oh, they're so dumb, they're so stupid. Why didn't they just pray? The demon would have come out. But I want us to consider the situation a bit more closely. First, the text here emphasizes the hor- how horribly violent this possession was. Now, it's not to say that there's some kinds of possession that are like, you know, more of a cakewalk. But rather, the, the text does highlight here that there is something particularly daunting about this possession. And we see it in the text, don't we? The, the, the demon is causing the child to convulse. It makes him fall into bodies of water and into fire. It's trying to kill him. And then we see that the father says that it shatters his son. And the Greek word there for shatter car- carries the idea of being broken, being crushed, being torn apart into pieces. It's almost like this boy was like a a half-dead gazelle in the mouth of a lion. If we could have seen a, a playback of this, it would have seemed like something from a horror movie to us. And that's the situation that the disciples are dealing with. Now add on top of that, that this detail that we find in the Gospel of Mark that uh, when the disciples, when Jesus comes back down from the mountain, he finds the disciples arguing with the Pharisees. John Calvin and a number of other commentators have taken this to, to say that it's likely that the Pharisees had tried to set a trap for the disciples. So the Pharisees see Jesus go up with Peter and James and John onto the mountain, and they think, okay, while he's away, now we can get him. So they go and get the most notorious uh, possession case that they know of, and they bring him to the disciples, thinking if they can't cast it out, it's going to discredit them and discredit Jesus. So putting all this together, the faithlessness of the disciples certainly isn't commendable, but it is, at least in some sense, understandable. They were overwhelmed, And because of that, they decide to take matters into their own hands. And friends, aren't we often just like that? We become overwhelmed with the hardship and the suffering of life, of which there is much. And so we decide to take matters into our own hands, rather than handing them over to Jesus. And just like Jesus did with the disciples, I think that we can use prayer as a diagnostic to see where these places are in our life. Let me ask you this question. What have you stopped praying for? What have you stopped praying for? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's, it's a diagnosis or an illness. What is something that you once took to God frequently in prayer, but you found yourself not praying for it anymore? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, this can be a window for us into the places that we've fallen into faithlessness, thinking that God doesn't hear us, or that if he does, he doesn't care. 
Or if he does he care, he, he obviously can't do something because look at our situation. Let me give you another diagnostic. Um, what are the places of unrest in your life right now? What are the places of unrest? What keeps you up at night? What are the things about which you just can't stop worrying? Since faith is trust in God's sovereign care, it typically results in the ability to at least have a modicum of rest and reassurance in the midst of hardship. But when we consider the things that cause us persistent and overwhelming worry in our life, it can be a sign of faithlessness because it's a sign of our hesitance to hand something over to God for fear that he won't do what we want him to do. So where do you see this in your life? Now, if we do some introspection, if we follow the leads that these diagnostics give us, I think what we'll find is that there's lots of places in our life in which we feel this lack of faith. I know I certainly do in mine. Places in which we've taken matters into our own hands. And so the question then is, how do we grow in faithfulness in those areas? Well, I think that the father of the possessed boy shows us the way. Contra the faithlessness of the disciples, he is a model of faithfulness. And first he shows us that faith begins with the acknowledgement that things are outside of your control. Things are outside of your control. We see this, of course, in the very basic action that drives the passage. Uh, The father brings the boy to Jesus and the disciples. He recognizes that what his son needs, he can't provide. So he's bringing him to the person that can, Jesus. And friends, if we're ever going to grow in faith, this is where we have to begin with. This is where we have to begin to. We have to begin with the acknowledgement that things are outside of our control. And so I wonder what part of your life right now you need to have this acknowledgement, this letting go. What parts of your life are you still desperately trying to grasp and have some sense of management and control? Whatever that place that is, I'd encourage you to apply uh, these words from 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The second example of faithfulness that this father gives is the posture with which he approaches Jesus. Um, this, is, uh, this comes from the Mark's account of this. We don't find it in the Lucan account, which is in front of us. But in Mark's account, the father comes up to Jesus and he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And then the father responds with this famous line, I believe, help my unbelief. And friends, this posture is the key to faith. I believe, help my unbelief. Because it shows us, as Tim Keller often says, 
that what matters isn't the quality or the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. He writes this, he says, Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Let me give an illustration. My family's here today, so I have to pick on my mom. Uh, She doesn't love heights, and she particularly doesn't love going over high or long bridges, which makes it a problem living uh, south of the river for us. But whenever she goes over a bridge, it doesn't matter whether her faith in the bridge is strong or weak. That doesn't affect the ability of the bridge to hold her up. What matters is the bridge's objective integrity. It doesn't matter if her faith in the bridge is strong or weak. It matters if the bridge itself is strong or weak. The efficacy of the bridge isn't tied to her subjective experience of going over it. And again, as Keller says, it's not the quality of faith that matters, but it's the object of faith that matters. Now, I think this is so important because it's so easy for us to get wrapped around the axle about the quality of our faith, trying to figure out, do I have faith? Am I trusting? Is it strong? Is it weak? And we can get so wrapped around the axle and so obsessed with that that kind of self-evaluation that eventually we become the object of faith. We think that what makes our faith real is if it's strong or if it's weak. But remember here, the difference between the disciples and the, the Father, the difference between faithlessness and faithfulness is that the disciples looked towards themselves and the Father looked outside of himself towards Christ. This is the most fundamental key to faith, looking towards Jesus. And as we go on in the passage, as we get to the end of it, Jesus tells us exactly what we should be looking towards. His death and resurrection. If the essence of faith is trust, the cross and the empty tomb are proofs of his trustworthiness. The cross proves the depths of Jesus' love for us, and the resurrection proves the divine power that he'll display on our behalf. It says in our text here that the disciples, when Jesus started talking about his being handed over, um, the Son of Man being handed over to men, that they just couldn't get what he was talking about. It says that they were even afraid to ask. And again, this is revealing their own faithlessness, their own lack of trust in him. And we see this displayed in Jesus' Passion Week. One by one, these followers of Christ fall away. Think about Peter. Peter, who had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, who had seen God's glory displayed unlike any other person ever had. And he denies Jesus three times. But after the resurrection, something clicks. They get it. And it changes everything. In Acts 5, Peter and some of these disciples are arrested and beaten for teaching about Jesus. 
And after they were released, it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So what was it that made these once faithless disciples now become models of faithfulness? What is it that made them from becoming so, being so self-obsessed to now being willing uh, to suffer for Christ's sake? It's the cross and the empty tomb. Because it's there at the cross and the empty tomb that they saw Jesus' faithfulness to them. They learned there that Jesus is faithful to faithless people. And it's from that realization that their faith then blossomed. Not from working it up within themselves, not from trying to uh, put it in the vice grip of their own human will, but rather it came from looking to the faithful Savior. And friends, this is just as true for you as it was for them. You live in a fallen world. And because of that, your faith is often going to be tried and it's often going to feel weak. You're often going to struggle, struggle to believe. But the good news is that Jesus is faithful to you in your faithlessness. And so, friends, if you want to grow in faith today, Look to the cross, look to the empty tomb, and cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, uh, don't, have to, that we don't have to come before you today being anyone other than who we are. Father, we come before you admitting that we often feel faithless, that we often feel uh, a lack of trust for you. And Father, we repent of that, but we thank you that when you look at that, you don't, as Tom said, you don't wag your finger, you don't sigh, but rather you embrace us because, Father, you've shown us through this text and so many others that you are faithful to us in our faithfulness and faithlessness. Father, we pray that you would use this great gospel truth by the Holy Spirit to actually increase our faith, to begin to trust you more and more. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.